Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Lex Roman is the senior product designer focusing on growth initiatives at the Black Tux. She believes that design has measurable value and should contribute to product growth. As a result, Lex has become facile with data, leading product analytics at startups and defining measurement strategies for over 30 companies. Lex also worked at Burner and agencies like Carbon5, Neo, and Cluj, helping clients drive up conversion and reach new audiences. Past clients include Toyota, Nissan, Macy's, Pro- Prosper, Joyable, and Deloitte. In her spare time, Lex uses her design skills to give back to her community, advocating for more housing and a more accessible city. Here are your hosts, Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. Hi, Lex. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and we have so many things that we'd love to talk to you about. I know Chris has a list of questions. Do I have a list of questions for you, Lex? Well, there's so many things that we should talk about. The the first thing that I, I really think, you're the first growth designer that I've ever known personally. And I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about how you got into that field and sort of, you know, where it is today and what's going on. Uh, I got into growth design through uh, doing conversion work. So I used to work for a company here in LA, you guys might know, called Kluge Interactive. And at Kluge, we got several clients that wanted to increase conversion of some specific metric. So I would like to see more donations. I would like to get more people buying this thing. I would like to get more emails. And then I would ask those founders, hey, so how many donations are you getting today? And they would say, hmm, I don't know. And so we started doing instrumentation of their websites and then, um, you know, coming up with ways to help them achieve those goals. And that was like the beginning of my UX career. So I just always thought that was kind of what design was. And when I started working at other companies, um, larger companies, I realized that 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 isn't what all design is and that there's a lot of designers who have different approaches that don't necessarily include business metrics. Um, And so, so now my perspective is that, you know, in the same way that we think of like visual design or um, information architecture or UX research as specializations of design, growth is one of those possible specializations of design. And then the focus is not only on the customer value, but on how it drives business value. And so how does that expand beyond just someone who is looking at analytics and performance? The main thing is designing things that will change, like, change a metric. So um, I moved like quickly beyond the like, oh, if I put a button at the top, people will click it, and that's better than not having a button there, to now thinking about um, how do we persuade people that this is the right product for them, or how do we find the right market for the problem that we're solving, using the messaging, using the way that the actual product is designed. So you actually run a meetup group, right? For growth designers here in LA? Kind of, I run a data meetup. Okay. I have an I have two online communities for growth designers. Growth designers is global because there's like, I mean, I have like 80 people in this community. It's a small, we're small. So we have, we have a Slack group, we have a Facebook group. We're doing an AMA next week. Nice. Yeah. Well, it'll be in the past when when you hear this, but yeah, we're trying to build the momentum. I actually don't think there's enough growth designers in LA to have a growth design meetup here. 
What's the name of the Facebook group? Designing for Growth. Designing for Growth. So yeah. you guys should all go check that out and yeah. subscribe. We well, started the Slack recently. The Slack's been picking up a little bit more steam because it's a little bit more real time and you know we can have different threads. San Francisco, I think, has the most concentration of growth designers. Like Airbnb, Pinterest, Dropbox, Strava, Figma, like they're all hiring for that role. Dropbox, I think, has the biggest growth design team. Like they have growth design managers, a director of growth design. And you're the senior product designer for growth at the Black Tux right now. So what does that look like for you? It's, it's interesting because I just had a conversation with my boss yesterday about uh, whether or not I count as a designer anymore because <laughs> what it looks like is a lot of a lot of investigation into customer behavior, both on the qualitative side by interviewing customers and in analytics. And often when I dig into the analytics, I find weird things that then need to be addressed for reporting. Um, so I do so much analytical work and then I do a lot of experimentation, what he called growth ops, like, should we use this tool or should we use that tool? Are we analyzing tests correctly? Like, did we just make this up? Uh, you know, what what is time in reality? Like, it's just like a lot of these sort of like philosophical questions, if you will. About yeah, I think you should definitely trademark growth ops right away. <laughs> well, he, oh, yeah. he said that and I googled it. I was like, no one's no one's doing this. Yet. Not yet, Not but yet. I think you're I think you're on the leading edge of something here. I mean, I, that's my sense is that you know, like like the way these things happen, right? It's like all I knew nothing. Growth was not a name for anything I understood, and then all of a sudden, it seemed like it was kind of everywhere, and not not necessarily a huge number of people, but you know, all of a sudden, you see job descriptions, you see groups, you see you know people you know connected to it. Okay. Um, let me let me ask you uh, a, a a question of the day. So I'm curious, uh, the other day I went to see Mike Montero speak. And so I think I can detect some interesting potentials for conflict in the idea of designing for growth and the idea of how do we design ethically. And I'm curious, and I know what a committed person you are, we're gonna talk about that a little bit later. So I'm curious about how you sort of manage that, you know, how you, how you keep your focus yeah. where you need it to be. Yeah. So to me, that's one of the most valuable reasons that designers should get involved in growth. Because designers, like, generally believe that we're doing work for the good of humanity, right? M most of us are. So Natural communists. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, designers are like, I love solving problems. I love people. And it's like, okay, well, if that's true, um, but we work for private corporations that need to make profits, how do we align those interests? So I think... To me, it's like previously we've had these kind of like growth hackers, which is no longer a term people are really using, people who are practicing growth are really using, but we've had these kind of like business people that have, who is it? Someone who worked at Facebook told me that the Facebook growth team would just like kill all your children if they could, if it would make Facebook more money, which we know is true given the news. Um, and I think part of what's happening with these companies is that design has left itself out of the business interest. So it's not participating. It's like, oh, but customers, humanity. And everyone's like, okay, but how do we make money? And if designers can answer that, both questions, then we can shift that a bit. I think that's the key to achieving what Mike Montero is after. And so when you're working with your teams, 
how do you bring those two things together, the business problem and the user problem, to make sure that designers are communicating that articulately? I think it starts with identifying the business goal. Like, so I work for the Black Tux. Our goal is to sell and rent tuxedos and suits. Um, so given that that's the goal, what I'm looking for is people who need that thing. And so we take that and we go and do customer research or we do market research. We try to identify how do we match, right? And so the obvious match for that is wedding. So we're talking with folks who are getting married and trying to understand what gaps you know, between them and us and competitors are there. And then you sort of think through like, what are some of the risks and the things that we're doing? Like every step of the way and every feature set, um, like what is the trade-off in doing this thing? Like things like dark patterns, you try to catch stuff like that. Um, and you ask like, is this a thing that drives both customer and business value? Or is it just one-sided? Is it just customer value? Is it just business value? I think that's really key. I'm trying to think. We had we had like an ethical trade-off the other day. I'm not sure that I want to say it <laughs> for recording. But like one thing is um, like one thing that I've been dealing with on the data side is how much data we collect. We're very conscious of the black, at the Black Talks of what data we collect of our customers, and we only collect what we need to do our job. We don't just like over collect a bunch of information about, about customers, which I think a lot of, is just like those conversations are not happening in most companies. Like they're just collecting. I mean, Facebook wants everything about you. And I don't know if they're thinking that much about, I mean, they probably are now, but they weren't, right? And they were like, oh, obviously we take all the data we can. And that's not true. Very interesting. You, you, you just made me think that um, you know, the challenge of being ethical, right, is not how are you ethical in every, you know, how is every single action that you take only good, right? That's a very naive sort of uh, approach. As, but what you said there, I think, is really good, which is the problem is that most of the time people are not even having the conversation and not even thinking about it. And the reality, the real world situation is that there's lots of times where you have to make a hard decision. Uh, that that comes down to an ethical choice and we you know we don't always we're not always able to make you know the most awesome correct ethical choice but we can't be uh, ignorant about the fact that we're making those choices like I feel like that's really the pitfall is to just not even realize that you're making an ethical choice yeah well and I think that's what's so depressing about Silicon Valley right now is like you talk to designers and engineers up there and they're just kind of like resigned to the fact that it's like Jack's fault or Mark's fault and it's like uh it's our fault and you're complicit you go work for Facebook you are complicit in this like don't pretend you're going to change this from the inside as a mid-level designer like that's not going to happen the secret is to not work at companies like that right I mean you can't work for founders you don't believe in you can't work for people that are driving that train and, and for those of us at smaller companies, uh, making sure that you have that space where people feel like they can say, hey, I'm not sure if this is the right thing to do for the internet or for the world. Like, let's not do, let's go ahead and not do this. Like, right, like as the advocate for the customer, we have a responsibility to bring that to light. And so like, what is your advice to designers on how to best do that? I think one thing is to start with 
who you choose to work for. So, you know, try to suss that stuff out in an interview process. Does this company value that kind of dialogue, asking about that? Uh, I mean, it's really, it's tricky. I, I'm like a very loudmouth person, so I've always felt comfortable just being like, nope, we're not going to do that. Or like, that doesn't sound, <laughs> does that sound like a good thing to you? Because that sounds problematic to me. I mean, in some cases, just pointing that out can work if your team is good at their jobs and like cares then sometimes just being like hey you know we're collecting customers birthdays in mailchimp does that make sense is that a piece of information we're using no great i'm gonna go ahead and shut that off like i think sometimes just pointing it out can be enough um, and just sort of ask like thinking through another way to do something like okay well here's the goal this particular solution seems like it might be problematic for this way, but what about if we did it this way instead? And often you can find something else that will work. Now, we're obviously very excited about this topic of growth, so we started there, but maybe if we took a step back and you could tell us a little bit about your journey. I mean, one of the, I, I first met you, I think you were at Cluj, um, and uh, I first associated you with a different movement, I would call the Balanced Team movement. Oh, yeah. And I'm curious, just tell me a little bit about your journey as a designer and, and sort of how you got here. Yeah. I miss the balance team. Hi, Lane. I hope Lane's listening. She's probably not, but if Lane's listening, I miss you and the balance team. Um, oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, memories. So um, I started my career in set design for television. I was just reflecting on that because this month is my 12th year in LA. And I started as a production assistant on the TV show Dexter. And I have a photo of me and Arturo from the set of Dexter. He hates it because his hair looks so bad. Um, but I love it because it's the only photo I have of myself on that show. Anyway. It's Arturo Perez at Cluj. Yeah, right I hope there. he, I hope he. <laughs> He's listening. <laughs> um, so I started working in set design. I worked in set design for five years. I was working on becoming an art director and I was hitting a lot of union barriers in the film industry. Because um, one irony of the film industry is like even if someone offers you a job You can't take it unless you're in that union and that whole thing is really complicated. So I decided to go to architecture school I thought it would give me more options in field of design Including art direction, but also possibly architecture or industrial design UX was not even on my radar. I didn't know about it but I knew Arturo from just being in LA and um, I was working for him at the time at Cluj as like during to like put myself through architecture school. Where did you go to architecture school? Woodbury and Burbank. Do oh. not recommend. Do not recommend. I quit like right away because what happened is I went into the office at Cluj and I was like, Arturo, I hate architecture school. And he was like, he just turns to me in the chair slowly and goes, "You should think about UX design." Nice. I know. I give him a Thank lot of goodness. credit. Thank goodness. Yeah. And he said, and there's a class at UCLA Extension you can take on UX design. And so I quit architecture school the next day and enrolled in that class, which just luckily because I quit school so early happened to be half like it worked out that the same semester I just changed. Nice. <laughs> and so I took Jamie Levy's class at UCLA Extension. Wow. Hi, Jamie. Hopefully you're listening yeah, as well. Yeah, I love Jamie. Um, she's the best. And Jamie, you know, really informed this like business uh, lens that I have because she taught me in startup design, which is just like design that feeds into the business model. And so like, I was like, oh, this all makes sense, right? Like, and now I'm like, oh, a lot of people don't learn it that way. 
turns out a lot of people just think about fonts or whatever. Um, yeah, so, and then I went, I, you know, I was still working for Kluge, so I quit architecture school and I just ended up being like an account manager at Kluge and then eventually started selling UX to our clients. So then I just like, because I printed all the business cards, just changed my title on them and then became a UX designer. <laughs> nice. That might be the most awesome origin story ever. I, I made my own business card and became a UX designer. That's really all it takes. Yeah, well, when you work at like an eight-person company and you're the person that prints the business cards, you have a lot of control. <laughs> I have a friend who back in the day uh, at Xerox was able to make a business card for himself with the title Grand Poobah. And that, they, yeah, they shut that down. I'm sure. After <laughs> realizing that corporate people were giving themselves titles. <laughs> is the title anyway I mean so I think um, it's super interesting as you said to approach uh, design from that business angle I mean that's that's something that I've long coached and mentored designers about right especially when you're working with product people when you're working with the business if they don't think that you're going to be able to deliver to their problems like you're not going to win a lot of arguments about the right thing to do if you don't understand what it is that they're trying to accomplish um, but what about uh, sort of the other side? How do you think about like relationships with technology? Because I think that's another, you know, hot topic in our area. It's like, should designers code? How, how much code is enough? Like how closely do you work with engineers? Like how do you, how do you guys do it at Black Tux? Or like what's your ideal situation? I've always worked really closely with engineers. I would not go work for a company where design was siloed from engineering. I just, I think that era is over at least i hope it is not as over <laughs> as you might think i know you know i say that but then i worked at envision and envision like weirdly was very siloed even though um it was all remote so there were no like physical barriers oh, to talking with someone but um, like designers didn't come to stand up um, you know some of them did like some designers did but a lot of them didn't um and there was a very real barrier between design and engineering like an emotional barrier there yeah, I so I've always worked really closely with engineers. I have a, a huge amount of respect for them. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time, like, dabbling in code. Like, I was recently playing with CSS Grid, which I find very entertaining. And, the, you know, the further I get into my career, the more I study engineering and try to understand their constraints and capabilities. One of my most recent forays into that is anal like analytics engineering, which is not a thing. My boss was like, that sounds like the most boring engineering job ever. But I started trying to implement events, like tracking events myself so that I can understand. And at Black Ducks, the engineers have, we're really closely involved on how we instrument the product. We have these like working groups, cross-functional working groups that go across the tech team, um, which include product design engineering, and in some cases, marketing. Um, and we talk through like, how should we be doing analytics or how should we be doing experimentation? Um, because there's way more engineers than anyone else, we often talk through the engineering lens. Those conversations I think have been really productive and are often led by engineers. And engineers in many ways have like the internet's best interests at heart. Like the good ones are like, you know, thinking about performance or thinking about security and designers don't. They're like, oh, someone handles that. And it's like, the person that handles that is an engineer. Okay. So, yeah, I, I really value that cross-functional collaboration, and I really value understanding the technology that powers the internet. It's helped, it's helped me work faster. 
And so with those cross-functional groups, is it divided by product? Like, and who is the lead behind it? Like who, who's initiating that type of interaction with the teams? Yeah, I'm super excited about them. And it's, an, it's a relatively new concept for me, like this idea of a working group. Carbon 5 kind of had some, but not this. it wasn't the same because they weren't a product company. So they've been initiated by engineers. So we have at least four. We have a front-end working group, a back-end working group, an analytics working group, and an experimentation working group, they, all of which were initiated by engineers, which makes sense. The experimentation working group is like, kind of has no owner, but like is maybe also me. And then I <laughs> co-owned the analytics working group with one of our front-end engineers. And basically they came about because of uh, team pain around a specific topic. So with analytics, there was a lot of pain on the engineering team about instrumentation requests. Product would be like, I'd like to measure X, Y, Z. And engineers would say, well, that's challenging because of all these complexities. And um, we kept coming across that. We kept wanting to measure stuff. It kept being difficult for different reasons. So we, we thought maybe we should just rethink the whole system. So we came up, we wrote out a list of pain points. It's pretty long. And then we prioritized it and, and we assign, you know, whoever shows up to the working group or whoever shows interest, different tasks. Like one of the things we're dealing with is naming conventions to help us just measure faster and have more clarity in our reports. So myself and one of our front end engineers um, are coming up with those. And then like one of our PMs tag team with another front end engineer on when do we track stuff? Like what should we track and when? So it's been great actually. It's been really helpful to pull that stuff out of the backlog and sort of have it sit at a higher level. Yeah, and it's definitely been my experience, right? That simple questions about what you want to measure Right? There's nothing simple about them, usually when you scratch under the surface. Oh. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's so funny too, because we're often like, huh, we just like sell suits and tuxedos. It sounds really simple, but then there's like all these funny like complexities about it and that all plays through in our analytics. Um, that it's just like, oh, that seems really easy, but then you actually sit down to do it and you're like, oh, wait. Yeah. confusing. Yeah. You can buy or rent a tuxedo. So like just all, all this, all these like small nuances just make, yeah, they make the system design challenging. Whenever someone says easy, I just get scared. I'm like, please don't say that word. Yeah. yeah. It's God forbid. usually not. Um, one thing I love about you is that you have this whole growth mentality, but you also have such a love for the users. And that is exemplified in other ways, like all the outreach that you've been doing for the homeless in LA. So I would love to know, like what drove you to see this problem and take action on that? I lived in San Francisco for a couple of years, um, 2014 to 2016. So in the middle of my time living in LA, I moved there and then came back. And when I came back to LA, the homelessness crisis had increased dramatically. And in areas that I had spent a lot of time and had never seen folks living on the street, there were tents everywhere, right? I mean, in my own neighborhood, there's like 
hundreds of people. Like I went to the grocery store last night and got asked for money like five times, which never would have happened, you know, eight years ago or whatever. So, and San Francisco has uh, a dramatic homelessness crisis too, but ha having lived in LA as long as I have, I was astonished at the growth of homelessness and the numbers, the numbers play that out. I think homelessness is up 50% since 2011. I mean, the growth just over the last three years is astounding. Um, so for me, it was just like completely unacceptable to go about my life stepping over a hundred people in need every day. I mean, it was, it's, I mean, like on my way here, I've interacted already with like, it's what, it's like 8.30 a.m. and I've already interacted with 20 folks in need. And so like, I don't know, it just wasn't acceptable to just be like, cool, that's fine. My life is fine. That sucks for you. Um, and I, I have always been a volunteer. I've always been really involved in various causes. I've never had a like a good job. I've never done a good job of focusing my causes. Like I, for a while, I was working on gun violence. After Sandy Hook, I just was like, "Whoa, this is not okay," and like, we this can't this can't be America, right? But um, after working on that for a while, and realizing how challenging it is to work on that, um, I've I've shifted my focus to homelessness. One interesting thing about homelessness is that you can have an impact on that locally and you can see your impact on like something like gun violence. I mean, you can actually probably do that too. Women Against Gun Violence is an amazing job. But yeah, so that's why I just really, I just felt like it was, it's unacceptable to me that 60,000 Angelinos are sleeping without housing. Like that's just nuts, that's bonkers. Yeah, uh, I definitely live that lifestyle. As you know, I go to work out on the beach three days a week and it is just such a the, the pain of it to be like oh let me go have my bourgeois you know boot camp on the beach while I step through the encampments every morning is is, is truly horrific um, what one of, one of the difficulties I find in the sort of public discourse about it right is trying to untangle the different sources of this crisis right I mean this is like we've got we've got the things that we can we can everybody agrees the problem that we have with the mentally ill on the streets, right? We know sort of how we got there, although the fact that we know that and have not figured out a, a solution, I mean, and for those of you listening who don't know, right, uh, decades ago, um, uh, mentally ill people were uh, uh, forced into mental institutions. And when uh, people realized that there were problems with the institutions, a big plan was, Let's get them out of big state-run institutions and allow the communities to provide support. That's a much better idea. But the problem is the communities are not, uh, we're never able to really meet that obligation. And so we've just been stuck with that same problem. Um, more recently, and I think in the last couple of years, right, we, we have a similar developing situation here in California. Uh, and then with the second main population that everybody sort of agrees upon, which are drug addicts, right? And so I, I notice in the debate in Santa Monica, and I'm sorry I'm droning on about this, but I really want your thoughts, um, is we've decriminalized uh, uh, things like uh, crystal meth, right? So that's now a misdemeanor in, in California. And so we've done the same thing where we're like no longer incarcerating 
drug addicts, a victimless crime. So I'm completely in favor of that. But we have no alternative. There's no treatment options. There's no regular plan. There's no investment on how to help the addicts who are on the street. So we've created this problem. And then the third, and then I'll stop, which is where I think the, the more difficult conversation is the, is the economic, um, uh, uh, how close to the bone that, that we're living. That I, the only thing I can think to call it is a, is, you know, is a crisis in global capitalism is what's going on. I mean, I'm, I'm terrified to think right now that we have this level of homeless crisis and after a decade of economic growth. And if anybody is not terrified by that and to think about what's going to happen in the next recession, I, I don't know what you're thinking. Anyway, sorry, that was my soapbox. And this yeah. is supposed to be your soapbox. It's a pretty decent soapbox. Yeah, I, <clears throat> so the, the homelessness crisis in California right now is the reason that it's a crisis and it's growing so fast is housing and economic, the economic crisis. So uh, I just read this stat last night about, I think it's a third of LA households spend over 50% of their income on rent. So, um, and LASA, our county homeless authority estimates we need half a million affordable units. And by that, I think they mean uh, like affordable by the definition of affordable housing, which is units that are below the average median income for Los Angeles at certain scales. You know, there's like low income, very low income, et cetera. And the median income for LA for a family of four is like $80,000, which is pretty high. Um, so, the, so housing is like where we're focusing a lot of our advocacy because housing can stop the bleeding of these numbers, right? It can stop people from falling into homelessness, folks who just can't afford to pay their rent. It's a lot easier and cheaper for us as taxpayers to keep them in their housing, subsidize their housing, move them into lower cost housing, than to let them fall on the streets and have to help recover from that. Um, in addition to that, we do have a drug crisis. We have a nationwide epidemic that we, I don't know, don't, don't deal with as much as we should. Um, and we have a lack of mental health slash healthcare infrastructure. <laughs> In our nation so all of those things just make this problem worse the easiest thing to do is to focus on like the people that are easiest to help and the people that are easiest to help are people who just can't afford their rent um, for folks who are dealing with mental illness or drug addiction um, or for folks that are chronically homeless meaning that they've been on the street for more than a couple years um, and have a, a disability or a debilitating factor that keeps them there. Um, there's this thing of supportive housing, which is also a thing we need. So the idea would be if you're taking someone off the street who has uh, additional needs aside just housing, aside from housing, you build supportive services on site in the housing. And that's the way that we, like for example, there's a project in Boyle Heights that's proposed uh, by a community of friends, which is a nonprofit developer, to house, I think it's 49 individuals who need mental health support. So that housing complex will provide stable, permanent housing. People can live there indefinitely, and on-site they'll have mental health care. The problem is that if you say that we're putting a building with mental health support in your neighborhood, how many people and lawsuits does that bring out? Like, it's insane. I mean, Venice alone is suing the city to overturn ordinances that affect the whole city um, because they just so strongly don't want to support that. So the the challenge that we're facing is the public 
who at the same time is struggling to pay their rent or find housing, right? How many people do you know that are looking to buy a house in LA that are like, I can't find one? Those same individuals are failing to show up at public meetings or are showing up and opposing any housing project in their neighborhood. Let's, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more because I think I, I'd love to have that call to action there. So in, in uh, LA County, we've approved uh, massive funds right, to address this crisis. And I hear a lot of complaints about how slow the rollout of the spend of those funds are. But on the other hand, everywhere you look, you've got neighborhood groups that are sort of not in my backyard, the NIMBYs, right, like violently, vocally, vehemently opposing. So I, I think, I mean, maybe this is just, I'm just saying the answer, but I mean, I think people who care about this really need to do a better job at showing up in public uh, hearings on this subject. I know that's something that, that, that you do a lot of. So how do people find out about that? Yeah, um, you can join mailing lists for any community, even like statewide or nationwide. Most communities, either your city or here in LA, we have the neighborhood council system um, or your county mailing list. So you can join mailing lists for your representatives. I would do that. Um, I would join community interest groups like residents associations or like homeowners associations, depending on where you live. Um, and they'll send out notices about public meetings for anything that's proposed, usually large construction in the area. Like this building is proposed, come to this hearing. You can also join like city planning uh, mailing lists. LA, for example, is redoing all the general plans. The city planning department is redoing all the general plans for the city of LA, but like within the next 10 years, I think. Some have already been kicked off, but you can go find the general plan area that you fall into and sign up for their mailing list. You can hear stuff from city planning. Um, and then, you know, if you walk around your neighborhood and you see that there's construction happening, you can often see who the developer is or sometimes they'll post public meeting notices there. And the thing, um, <laughs> there's a lot of people hate developers, but um, when I talk to developers um, or nonprofit developers specifically. By the way, here we mean construction developers. Yeah. We're not talking about software engineers. <laughs> no, software engineers are fine. I know that's confusing for me too. Someone was like, oh, I know this developer who like makes, and I was like, oh, you mean an engineer, not a, yeah. Um, some developers will have mailing lists and uh, you could reach out and, and say like, oh, I noticed there's a building that you're building on the corner of 16th and San Monica. Like what, what is that? Can I learn more about it? Um, I think what's, it's so funny. I've joked on Twitter that I'm going to make a t-shirt that says no one notified me because like it is like we're dealing with city governments and like people and a lot of this stuff is happening over emails and bulletin boards and it's like, yeah, there's not like a Facebook for public engagement. Like, it's not, it's not, no one's gonna hand this to you on a plate. But there are, like, you can start to put your ear to the ground and pay attention to it. And it's, it only takes a few subscribes and then you're there. I think, though, for some of our listeners, they could be very intimidated by taking that action. And I think you've done a great job of like reaching out to simplify some of the actions people can take and especially within the design community of what we can do to design a better experience. Can you talk about that a little bit? Design and homelessness, yeah. So many people are interested in that. There's that whole project called, I think, Design and Homelessness or Design for the Homeless. Um, I'm giving a talk about this uh, at LA Design Fest 
It's called, can we design the end to homelessness? The answer is no. Still come to the talk though, and then you guys can't because it's over by the time you listen to this, but. Um, when is the talk? You should come to the talk. Um, June 20th, yeah. Maybe I'll replay it another time. I think, so designers can do a lot in, in the homelessness field or area, not really a field, I guess. Um, but I would say that like, I would appreciate it if people would approach it from the lens of like, how can I help? Not how as a designer can I help? Because I think, you know, doing some work with Hack for LA, um, I've noticed that people come and they want to help, but only if it can go in their portfolio. And that like doesn't quite work for this crisis. It's kind of like, do you care or do you not? If you do, we need you here on the street. When you get there on the street and you talk to this community, you will uncover ways that you can use your skills. So for example, there's an encampment on Alvarado on the 101. It's a very dense encampment. It is so dense that the city has put a bathroom there. Um, and it's filthy. It's just covered in trash. And the, the, for a variety of jurisdictional reasons, doesn't get cleaned up very often. Um, it's an eyesore and it's a public health concern for both the encampment residents and the surrounding neighborhood. And so I learned, having visited that encampment, that the folks who monitor the bathroom there have trash bags and will have the trash hauled away if the residents bag up their trash and walk it across to them. So it's like a 10 feet walk. So I made these signs where people are dumping trash. I put these signs that are like, hey, did you know there's trash bags to your left two feet? And if you do that, then you don't have to sit in the pile of trash all day. Um, so that's an example of like, but it's like not the thing that I'm gonna like make a project brief for, no. and show, you know? It's like, no. you just kind of have to go and be like, oh, you need a flyer? I can design a flyer, right? But like, there's definitely a very deep level of empathy that you each encounter can teach you something new. And I think relating to that community and taking action could make a huge difference. Yeah, I really think if people get involved at any level that they're comfortable getting involved, they'll find opportunities. Um, so for, for architects, for example, a lot of um, architects and architecture schools have been doing concept design for um, ADUs, accessory dwelling units, which are like guest houses, which is one potential answer to the housing crisis is like put a guest house in your backyard. The county offers subsidies for that. So just doing some design for that, you know, they're doing these concepts, but it inspires people. It also creates tangible plans people can use. Um, yeah, even at World IA Day, uh, we brought in your friend, Chris Helmy, mm -hmm. uh, from nice. LA uh, Housing District to kind of talk about, well, in that case, I think we were focusing on the scary information architecture <laughs> that was in place that made it extremely difficult to even find affordable housing. Yeah, obviously the, the public bureaucracy and the way that the agencies coordinate and, you know, that's, you know, that's just one of the worst ironies of the situation is that public officials feel like they're doing things that are not being effectively used or utilized, right? That money is going that is not. But Right, just even that problem of how do you find the services that apply to you? Yeah, is that was that HSID, the Housing Community Investment Department? No, which, uh, she worked for the LA uh, Housing. Hackla. No, I mean for the city, whatever the department. HSID. 
So, I know all the acronyms. I know. The housing I, and community investment department, I'm pretty sure, is H. Well, because yeah. they have like an affordable housing list and they're, they're trying to redesign it. Yeah, I mean, information architecture, Anita Chang should uh, speak to that. <laughs> it's like, you should have her on. Yeah. It's so funny. I did, we did this like, Hack for LA has, um, participates in the National Day of Civic Hacking. So last year we did, instead of hacking, we did a listening session and we had government officials and nonprofits speak about homelessness, just like air out all their problems. Like what are all the problems that you're facing? So we could maybe distill some stuff out of that. Um, I wrote up a recap about it. There were, there was a lot surfaced, but there is like a, there is like a little bit of a disconnect where like the government's like, we know that we have tech workers who can be effective. We're not really sure how to utilize them. Like there's like a, Translation that's not quite happening between those two things. Um, and as any civic tech worker knows, government is really challenging. And those of us who work in the private sector just aren't used to some of the ridiculous things that they have to deal with. So it's hard on a volunteer basis to do that sometimes. Um, our traditional question that we like to ask everybody on the show is what advice would you give to a UX designer just starting out in their career, or a growth designer, or whatever they want to call themselves? I, to any designer, I would say, think about how you add value to the market, which is a very growth designer answer. And think about how you differentiate in the market. There's tons of designers out there now. What makes you different? How do you contribute value to the world? That's great. And the other question is, what would you like your legacy to be? I would like for people to give a, can I, can I swear? Yeah. I would like people to give a shit. I would like my legacy to be increased productive public participation in, in everything, not just in housing, but also in the ethics conversation. I would like people to show up to work and realize that everything they do has an impact and that they should think more thoughtfully about it. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks, Lex. Really great conversation. Important conversation. Thank you for having me. UX Radio is produced by Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more. This episode is brought to you by Philosophy. Philosophy helps entrepreneurs and organizations validate and develop their promising ideas through agile design, rapid prototyping, and software craftsmanship. To learn more, visit philosophy with an IE.is.